Chapter 44 of The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls by Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter 44 The Story of Napoleon Napoleon Bonaparte was born of a good family in the island of Corsica in the year 1769, the year after Maria Antoinette was married to Louis XVI of France. Corsica had for many years been fighting for its independence against Genoa, but had at last been sold by that state to France. So Napoleon Bonaparte, though he was Italian by birth, was a subject of the French king. When he was a boy, he was fond of playing with a drum and sword, and his father made up his mind that he should be a soldier. When he was ten years old, he was sent to France to be trained at schools for boys intending to join the army, and he became a lieutenant in an artillery regiment when he was sixteen. When the revolution broke out, Napoleon, although he had never been very fond of France because of its conquest of Corsica, was filled with enthusiasm for it. Corsica sent representatives to the Tier Etat, and all the reforms which were made in France were carried out in Corsica too. In the first years after the beginning of the revolution, Napoleon Bonaparte lived quietly at lodgings at Auxon where his regiment was stationed, and did all he could to educate his young brother Louis, who lived with him. Their father was by this time dead, and Napoleon was looked upon as the head of his family, although he was only the second son. The other officers in his regiment were royalists, and Napoleon was very lonely, for he could not mix freely with them. He had always been fond of history, and he read now all he could find, being especially fond of Julius Caesar's own account of his wars in Gaul. He had to take his sister home to Corsica when the convent at which she was a pupil was broken up by the revolutionaries, as so many convents and monasteries were. But it was not long before all the Bonapartes had to leave Corsica, for Paoli, the chief man in the island, turned against France after the death of the king, and joined himself with England to fight against France. The Bonapartes went to France. Napoleon had a better chance of rising quickly as an officer, because the army was in great need of good officers, through the loss of so many royalists. He first won great praise for himself by the way in which he helped in the attack on the royalists at Toulon in 1793. They had let British and Spanish soldiers into the town, and the Republicans were afraid that more and more might come, and that a great attack might be made on France from this port. The first officers sent against Toulon did very little good. One of them was an artist who knew nothing about fighting. It was Napoleon who pointed out the weak side of the town where the attack could be made. The town was conquered, and an English invasion of France by way of Toulon was now impossible. After this, Napoleon helped a great deal in fortifying places along the coast of France. He still spent all his spare time in studying the science of war. The help which he gave the Directory in putting down the insurrection in Paris in 1795 made him great. He had fallen in love with Josephine du Beauharnais, the widow of a French noble who had been executed during the Revolution. Josephine was very lively and beautiful and one of the greatest women in France at the time. She was a friend of Barras, the chief man in the Directory and he persuaded her to marry Napoleon. She was six years older than Napoleon and did not care much for the thin, pale-faced officer, but she at last agreed to marry him, though she would not go with him two days after the marriage to Italy, where he had got the command of the French army. 
The attack on Italy was part of the war against Austria, to whom most of the north of Italy belonged. Two other armies were to march through Germany and attack Vienna. Napoleon was only one of the generals of the Republic, but he knew that he was the best soldier of his time, and he had already made up his mind to imitate Julius Caesar and to make himself dictator of France, and of as much of Europe as he could win. It was a wonderful plan for this young Corsican officer even to think of, and more wonderful still is the fact that he nearly carried it out, and that for years he kept all Europe struggling to overthrow his power. The Emperor of Austria had the King of Sardinia to help him in the north of Italy, but Napoleon always tried to keep his enemy split up, and prevented the army of Piedmont, which was under the rule of the King of Sardinia, from joining the Austrian army. And soon the King of Sardinia made his peace with Napoleon, giving Piedmont up to France. Napoleon then easily conquered the Austrians and took the north of Italy. He made the people pay him money, and he chose some of the most beautiful of the art treasures of Italy to send back to France. Before this, Prussia and Spain had been frightened into making peace with France, and Spain and Holland were even helping that country at this time. But England was still the greatest power on the sea, and victories were won over both the Spanish and Dutch fleets. Now, in 1797, Austria made peace and agreed to give up the north of Italy to France. The Great Lord Nelson England was now left alone to fight the French. When Napoleon got back to Paris, it was quite plain that he could do just what he liked. But he did not have himself made dictator yet. He pretended that he was going to invade England, but he really intended to sail to Egypt conquer it, and Syria, and from there perhaps win both India and Europe. When Napoleon sailed off to the east, part of the British fleet under Sir Horatio Nelson followed it. Nelson was soon to show himself the greatest of English seamen. He was a small, delicate-looking man, but he was a splendid sailor and soldier, and had been at sea since he was twelve years old. A story is told of him that, when he was still a young midshipman, he was on a ship which sailed into the ice-bound seas near the North Pole. He and another boy stole away one night to see if they could find and shoot a bear. A fog came on, and the captain was very anxious when he knew that the boys were missing, but when the fog melted away, he saw them far off, ready to attack a bear. The captain called to them to come back to the ship, and the other boy did so, but Nelson cried out, begging the captain to let him have just one blow at the bear. But the captain had a shot fired which frightened the bear away. When Nelson got back to the ship, the captain scolded him, but he said sorrowfully, I wanted to kill the bear and take its skin home to my father. Horatio Nelson never knew what it was to be afraid. When the fleet under Nelson came up with the French fleet, they were anchored in the Bay of Abakir, close to the shore of Egypt. Napoleon was already fighting on the land and winning Egypt from the Mameluke. Nelson ordered five of his ships to sail in between the French ships and the shore, for, he said, where the French ships had room to swing, the English had room to anchor. In this way, the French ships were caught between two fires. The battle began at sunset and went on all night. By morning, eleven of the thirteen French ships had been destroyed or taken. The French admiral's flagship had blown up, and the admiral himself had been killed. It was on this ship that the ten-year-old boy, Casabianca, died standing at his post on the burning ship until his father should give him leave to go. His father was already dead, though Casabianca did not know it, and the brave boy died too. Nelson was wounded in the forehead, but he had won the great battle of the Nile. After this, no other fleet had any chance against the English in the Mediterranean. Meanwhile, Napoleon went on from Egypt 
to Syria, which he meant to win from Turkey. But he could not take Acre, which the English officer, Sir Sidney Smith, helped to defend. Then, suddenly, Napoleon slipped back to France in a fast-sailing ship. He was much needed there, for trouble was threatening the directors from all sides. Napoleon was greeted with joy as the conqueror of Egypt. He was wise enough not to say much about Syria. When Napoleon left France, England was the only country at war with the Republic, but he came back to find that a new coalition had now been formed against her. England, of course, was in it, for it was England from the first who was most determined to resist the attacks of France on the lands of Europe. Russia and Austria were the other chief members of the coalition. While Napoleon was away, the Directory had been in great need of money, and they had actually sent an army to attack Rome, where there were a few Republicans. The old Pope, Pius VI, was a very good and gentle man, and Rome had been quite happy under him, far happier than it was now when the French turned it into a republic, and then took as much money and as many of its art treasures as they could get. The people of Europe were horrified to hear that the Pope had even been roughly treated, his staff dragged from his hand and his ring from his finger. He was carried off to Siena and then to Valence in France, where he stayed till he died. The French soon made themselves hated in Rome. For the same reason they set up a united republic in Switzerland, calling it the Helvetian Republic. The cantons, as a division of Switzerland were called, were each used to governing themselves and did not want this new form of government. The Kingdom of Naples, whose queen, Marie Caroline, was a sister of Marie Antoinette, was also turned into a republic, though here very few of the people wished for this change. When the coalition began to fight, the French were defeated in North Italy by the great Russian general Suvorov. Suvorov was a very wonderful general. He never dreamed of failure, and when he had fought and won a battle, he always still had strength to pursue the enemy as they fled. His men took the same courage from him. His commands before a battle were almost amusing from the confident way they would begin with such words as, the hostile army will be taken prisoners. The king and queen of Naples were given back their kingdom, and Nelson's fleet stood by to defend them. In Switzerland, an Austrian officer led an Austrian and Russian army against the French, but could not drive them out. Still, things were going very badly with the French when Napoleon got back from Egypt. The people were quite tired of the directory. The Abseis, a priest, who had been making constitutions ever since the revolution began, had another one ready now. The worst of paper constitutions, that is, constitutions which are drawn up out of a man's head without any experience of how they work, is that they very seldom will work at all. This new constitution of the year 8, as it was called, for now in France the years were counted from the year one, the first year of the destruction of the monarchy and the setting up of the republic, was carefully drawn up so that power was divided between many people and nobody had any real power at all. Napoleon thought it would be a very good constitution indeed with one change. At the head of all the other parts of the constitution there should be a first consul and he should be Napoleon himself. Napoleon had his great army behind him, ready to fight for him to a man, and the French people had no chance to say no, even if they had wished. But they were tired of disorder, and were only too glad to have a strong man to govern them. For the first consul was just as absolute as any king of France had ever been, Four years afterwards, he was given the name of emperor, but he was the all-powerful ruler of France from the moment he became first consul at the end of the year 1799.
The few serfs who were still remaining in France at the Revolution became free. The property which had been taken from the church and given to other people was not given back, but the churches which had not been given away were. Peace was made with the Pope, and the Catholic religion was made the religion of the state again, but the priests were to be servants of the state and paid by the government as they are still in France today. So many changes which the revolution had made remained, but there was no real democracy or self-government, which was what the Republicans had fought so hard for. Each district in France was governed by men chosen by Napoleon, so that he had the whole government of the country in his hands, just as much as Louis the Fourteenth had had. The people were not more free under Napoleon in many ways than they had been before. The freedom of the press, which the revolutionaries had given, by which any man could publish any book he liked, was now stopped. Every book had to have the consent of people appointed by the emperor. Then, too, Napoleon could imprison or send anyone out of the country just as he liked. He had his spies everywhere to watch the people and inform him if anyone was dangerous to the government. As time went on, too, Napoleon became more and more anxious to have a magnificent court. The old nobles who were willing to come back were gladly received, for Napoleon liked to have men with high-sounding names around him. The revolutionaries had said there should be no new titles, but Napoleon loved to make men dukes for their services to him, and a new nobility grew up around him. His coronation with Josephine in 1804 was a very gorgeous affair. Napoleon had persuaded the new pope, Pius VII, to go to Paris for the coronation, but when the moment came, he preferred to put the crown on his head himself. Napoleon was dressed for the ceremony in a red velvet coat and over it a purple robe of velvet trimmed with ermine, while Josephine knelt beside him in white satin and diamonds. Russia had by this time made peace with Napoleon, for the Tsar Paul admired him very much and had only really been led to declare war against France because Napoleon had attacked the Turks and Russia thought that the western countries of Europe should leave the east alone and that if anyone won land from Turkey, it should be Russia herself. So now Napoleon had England and Austria to fight. He knew that a large Austrian army was at the foot of the Italian side of the Alps, near the Mount St. Bernard, a very difficult place. But he led his men across. It was a very difficult march with cannons and baggage, but Napoleon's soldiers could do almost anything. They fought the Austrians and won the great battle of Marengo. In Germany, another of Napoleon's generals won the Battle of Hohenlinden, and now Austria, too, made peace, leaving Napoleon with all his conquests. And so once more England was left to fight France alone. Russia had persuaded Sweden, Prussia, and Denmark, all the countries with ships on the Baltic, to complain of the way in which England treated their ships. England had forbidden ships of countries which were not at war to carry things between countries which were at war and other things which were quite right. For if England had not forbidden these things, a country like Sweden could have helped France very much against her without declaring war. But now these countries complained and England had to fight them. A fleet was sent to Denmark under Nelson, but over him was Sir Hyde Parker, who was not nearly so fine a fighter or officer as Nelson. He sent messages to the Danes, hoping to be able to make an agreement without fighting. This made Nelson very impatient, but the Danes were obstinate, and so a great battle was fought outside the harbor of the city of Copenhagen, the capital of Denmark. It was a hard fight, and in the middle of it, Sir Hyde Parker, fearing that the English could be defeated, 
put up a signal, cease action. Nelson did not see it at first, and when someone told him of it, he put a telescope to his blind eye, for he had lost one eye and an arm, too, in battle some years before, and said, I do not see the signal, and so went on fighting. He was right, for the English won a great victory. The Danes promised to give up their fleet, and now Napoleon had no more hope of destroying England's power on the seas. Soon after, the Tsar Paul died, and his son Alexander became king. Though Alexander admired Napoleon too, he was much under the influence of his mother and her friends, and he was persuaded to give up the friendship with France. So England had her way, after all, about the ships of the countries which were not at war. Just at this point, the younger Pitt, the son of the great Earl of Chatham, gave up his position as head of government in England. It was he who had been so determined to fight the French, and Napoleon took advantage of his absence to arrange a peace with England. A peace was signed, but it did not last long. Napoleon never meant it to. He hated England with a bitter hatred. So far he had been able to conquer the old-fashioned armies of the European countries, but everywhere the English had won by sea. These victories of the English were partly owing to the fact that the English were a real nation, while the feeling of nationality was not awake yet in Europe, except perhaps in France itself. The armies of Austria made war on Napoleon because their emperor told them to, but they had no great interest in the battle. Later on, when the peoples of Europe began to hate Napoleon, things were different. The younger Pitt came back to power in 1804 and immediately began to plan another coalition, but even before this, Napoleon was building a great fleet of flat-bottomed boats in which he hoped to carry soldiers across to England and conquer it. He knew that England had no great army to meet his, but already Englishmen everywhere were offering themselves as volunteers and drilling hard so as to be able to fight the French when they came. Napoleon ordered Spain, whose weak king, Charles IV, was entirely in his power, to build a fleet too. The French and Spanish fleets were to sail to the West Indies, and Napoleon hoped that the greater part of the British fleet would follow them. Then the remaining French fleet would easily destroy the English fleet in the Channel and land the Army of England in England. But things went wrong. The English fleet watched the others too well, and the whole plan failed. Meanwhile, Pitt had got his coalition, when Russia and Austria joined him once more in war against Napoleon. One thing which made the other countries very angry was the way that Napoleon behaved when in 1804 he found out a plot to kill him and put the uncle of Louis XVI on the French throne. This uncle, who was called Louis XVIII by the royalists, was in England, and Napoleon could not get at him, but he ordered French soldiers to arrest the Duc d'Enguillon, a young prince of the French royal family who was living in one of the German states. Napoleon had no right to arrest a prisoner in any other country. This was an insult in itself, but people were still more horrified to hear that the young prince had been shot by order of Napoleon, although he had not had anything to do with the plot. The Death of Nelson In October 1805, Napoleon, seeing that he could not land his army in England, sent it across Europe to fight the Austrians in Bavaria. It won a great victory at Ulm, but two days after, Nelson won another victory at sea, the victory of Trafalgar. The Battle of Trafalgar was fought off the Spanish coast near the Cape of Trafalgar. The English, under Nelson, fought the united fleets of France and Spain. The ships fought close together in a terrible struggle, and the English almost completely destroyed the enemy's fleets. 
At the beginning of the fight, Nelson ordered the famous signal to be made to all his ships. England expects every man to do his duty. But Nelson, at the head of his line of ships, on his own ship, the Victory, was wounded in the breast. His coat was covered with medals, which he had refused to take off when someone suggested that the enemy would recognize him through them and shoot specially at him. But as he was carried down below deck to die, he covered them and his face with a handkerchief, lest his men should see that he was dying and be discouraged. Before he died, he knew that the victory had been won. Almost his last words were, Thank God I have done my duty. And then he asked his friend Captain Hardy to kiss him. We may still see Nelson's ship, the victory, at anchor outside Portsmouth Harbor. Very quaint it seems to us today when we compare our own ironclad man-of-war with this battleship of a hundred years ago. In spite of Trafalgar, Napoleon seemed all-powerful, for after Ulm, he won a very brilliant victory at Austerlitz, and once more Austria and Russia made peace with him. At the beginning of the French Revolutionary Wars, the leader of the revolution had tried to set up republics all around France, but now Napoleon did away with the republics and turned them into kingdoms, as he had really made France again. But they were not to be independent kingdoms. Most of them were ruled by Napoleon's brothers or his generals, and all, of course, had to do exactly what the emperor told them. All Napoleon really cared for now was victory and power. He drove the king and queen from Naples and put his brother Joseph there as king of the two Sicilies. Holland, or the Batvian Republic, now became a kingdom again under his brother Louis. The electorate of Hanover, which belonged to the English king, was taken, and for a time given to Prussia, but later, with some other states joined to it, became the kingdom of Westphalia, and over this another brother, Jerome Bonaparte, reigned as king. Napoleon had himself crowned king of North Italy. The smaller German states he joined together under his protection and called them the Confederation of the Rhine. As though to make all these changes in Europe the more remarkable still, the Emperor of Austria gave up his title of Holy Roman Emperor, which had been so carefully treasured and handed down through the Middle Ages, and called himself for the future of the hereditary Emperor of Austria. Napoleon would dearly have loved the title of Roman Emperor for himself. All this Russia and Austria had to agree to when the coalition broke up in 1806. Soon after this, William Pitt died. Charles James Fox, one of the greatest statesmen of the day, who had at first been enthusiastic about the French Revolution because of its cry for freedom, now tried to make peace with Napoleon too, but failed. Now at last the King of Prussia, Frederick William III, declared war too against Napoleon, but his army was completely defeated in the Battle of Jena, and Napoleon marched to Berlin, the Prussian capital. Then Russia joined the army of Prussia, but both were defeated, and Napoleon and Alexander of Russia met and made the Peace of Tilsit. They met in a raft on the middle of the river at Tilsit. Napoleon cleverly did all he could to make the young Tsar admire him. When he had done this, he flattered him by suggesting that they too should divide Europe and Asia between them. Napoleon's idea was that he himself should be Emperor of the West, by which he meant all Europe except Russia and Sweden, while Alexander should be Emperor of the East and be allowed to win power over Sweden and Turkey. The idea pleased Alexander very much. For five years, Napoleon and Alexander were friends. Napoleon's first idea after the Peace of Tilsit was to try once more to ruin England. He forbade every country in Europe to trade with Britain. 
as every country in Europe depended very much on the things brought to them in English ships, this would have been very difficult. The countries of Europe still bought things brought in English ships and had to pay more for them because of the extra difficulties. Even Napoleon had to buy cloth for his soldiers' clothes from England. The two most faithful friends which England had were Sweden and the little kingdom of Portugal. Alexander of Russia was left to deal with Sweden. Alexander attacked Sweden, whose brave king, Gustavus IV, was made to abdicate because he would not give up his friendship with England. His uncle was made king of Sweden, but had to agree that one of Napoleon's generals should be king after him. He had to give up Finland, too, which was now taken by Russia. While Napoleon made up his mind to punish Portugal, he thought it would be easy enough. He made up his mind to send a French army into Spain, and he asked the chief officer of the Spanish king to join a Spanish army with it. These two armies poured into Portugal, and the royal family and all the greatest men of Portugal took refuge in the fleet. Some English ships came to protect them, and they sailed off to Brazil. Meanwhile, there was much quarreling between the King Charles IV of Spain, who was almost an imbecile, and his son Ferdinand, who was not much better. Napoleon asked them both to meet him at Bayonne, and there he threatened Ferdinand, who called himself already King of Spain, because his father had abdicated, that if he also did not give up his claim to the throne in a few hours, he should be treated as a rebel. So Ferdinand gave up his rights to his father again, but Charles IV had already sold his kingdom to Napoleon for a palace in France and a pension. Then Napoleon offered the crown of Spain to Louis, his brother, remarking that the climate of Holland did not suit him. But Louis refused, and it was then given to Joseph Bonaparte, who gave up his kingdom of the two Sicilies to one of Napoleon's generals. Spain's Struggle with Napoleon But while Napoleon had been busy making all these arrangements, he had forgotten all about the Spanish people. It was a dreadful mistake. They were very angry indeed when they heard that their country was being bought and sold in this way. National feeling in Spain rose against Napoleon. The people were determined to fight this conqueror and tyrant. Every peasant took up arms, and though the armies of Spain were made up of men who had not fought before, they soon showed themselves able to fight the French armies on equal terms. The siege of Saragossa, the capital of Aragon, is among the famous sieges of history. There were only a few hundred Spanish soldiers to hold its low brick wall against a large French army, but women and children and monks and nuns, as well as the ordinary men of the city, did their part to help. The children carried the cartridges which the nuns made. When the hospital where the wounded soldiers lay was set on fire, the women carried the men from their beds through the flames. At another place, an army of 18,000 French had to surrender their arms to an army of young Spanish soldiers quite new to war. The tale of these things spread through Europe. The English sent armies too to help the Spaniards, and so began the Peninsular War. In this war there fought on the English side Sir Arthur Wellesley, who afterwards became famous as the Duke of Wellington. He had already won great victories for England over the natives of India, who had risen against the English when Napoleon had sent them word that he was coming to help them drive the English out of India. Wellesley landed in Portugal in August 1808 and drove the French armies right out of that country. This was a great gain, for now England had a country from which she could attack Napoleon over land. Sir Arthur Wellesley was called back to England, but Sir John Moore in the same winter prevented Napoleon, who had now come unexpectedly, from conquering the South. 
Sir John Moore had to lead his men over the ridges of the hills of Galicia to Coruna, where he expected English ships to take his worn-out soldiers back to England. It was one of the greatest retreats of history. The hills were covered with snow. Every now and then the English had to turn and fight the foremost of those following them. Napoleon did not follow long, for he had to go back to Germany, but one of his generals took his place. At last, when they reached the coast, the English army turned and fought one more great battle. They won, but the noble Sir John Moore was killed. Every child knows the poem which tells about his burial. Then Sir Arthur Wellesley came back to Spain. For five years he fought against the French generals there. The Spanish armies were not much use to him, but the ordinary peasants and working people helped him very much. He had to fight the great battles himself, but wherever a few French soldiers were met by peasants, they were attacked and killed, for the Spaniards were now full of hate for the French, who had tried to buy and sell their nation. During five years, Napoleon had to leave 250,000 soldiers to fight in Spain, while he himself was fighting in other places. He always thought that his officers there were fighting badly. It was a long time before he understood what a great soldier Wellesley was, though at last he said, so the story tells us, this Wellesley seems to be a man indeed. He did not then know that this same Wellesley, as Duke of Wellington, was to overthrow his power at last. The example of Spain filled the peoples of Europe with enthusiasm. Up to now, there had not been any real national feeling in any country of Europe except England. In the east of Europe, as we have seen, districts were bought and sold and handed about from one country to another. But now things were different. The peoples in Europe began to hate Napoleon just as the people of Spain did. The French Revolution itself, though it now seemed a failure, had spread new ideas of freedom among the peoples of Europe. Napoleon himself, though he would have no government by the people, which was what the leaders of the revolution had wanted, made many reforms in the countries he conquered. Better laws and justice were given. In France, much better schools were set up, and Napoleon tried to have even the poor boys in the countries he conquered educated, though he thought that education did not matter at all for girls. They were best at home with their mothers, he thought. He was very old-fashioned indeed on this subject. But perhaps the greatest reform of all was the setting free of many serfs in the east of Europe. With this freedom, the peasants began to feel a hope and pride in the countries to which they belonged. The defeat of the Prussians at Jena made that people very angry, and a great Prussian statesman named Stein now arose and made many reforms in Prussia. The serfs were free, and every young man was trained in the army. Many of these things were what Napoleon himself had advised in other countries, but when he found people doing these things for themselves, he was afraid, for he knew that the love of freedom would grow and that the nations would rise against him. So he made the king of Prussia send Stein away. But he could not destroy the work he had begun. A new love of freedom spread through all Germany, a sort of excitement like that which had moved the men of the Renaissance. New German poets, like the great Goethe, began to write, and the young men of Germany joined themselves in secret clubs and societies, determined to drive the hated foreigners out of their land. The little district of Tyrol had belonged to Austria for 400 years, but now it had been given to the king of Bavaria. It rose in revolt. Tyrol is a country of mountains where simple peasants lived, but it was the peasants who were now showing themselves so brave everywhere. They were led by Andrew Hoffer, a village innkeeper, a tall man, strong as a giant. The peasants rose under him and won their country back for a time, but they were defeated later and Hoffer was shot.
Meanwhile, Napoleon had defeated the Austrians once more at the Battle of Wagram. The Emperor of Austria was forced to make peace, and he was forced to allow an Austrian princess, the Archduchess Marie Louise, to marry Napoleon. The Empress Josephine had not had any children since her marriage with Napoleon, and he longed above all things to have a son to hold his empire after him. So now he divorced Josephine in spite of her begging him not to do so. She lived quietly by herself after this, and the emperor sometimes visited her. He was full of joy when Marie-Louise had a son, who is generally called the young Napoleon. He did not know that, while his son was still a little child, he would lose the empire he had meant to hand on to him. The Fall of Napoleon Napoleon seemed now more powerful than ever, the English armies which were sent to help in Europe were not sent to the right places, for the second Lord Chatham, the son of the elder Pitt and the brother of the younger, was not a clever man, and it was he who had the arrangement of the war. But now at last the friendship between Alexander of Russia and Napoleon came to an end. Alexander would not help Napoleon to try to ruin the English trade, and so Napoleon made up his mind to attack Russia itself. He led what he called his grand army of half a million of his best soldiers, trained now in many years of war. Half of these were French, the rest soldiers from the countries he had conquered. When he reached Dresden with his army, Marie-Louise and the little king of Rome, as the baby was called, were with him. The emperor of Austria, the king of Prussia, and other kings were present to do him honor. It was for the last time. And now Napoleon led his great army into Russia. He was sure of victory, but he did not know Russia. On he marched across the vast country, but the heat was terrible, for in Russia the summers are very hot and the winters terribly cold. Many horses died and many soldiers deserted, and the Russian generals, instead of fighting, led Napoleon on across the vast country. Winter was coming on, and Napoleon thought of staying where he was till the spring, but he was impatient. He must conquer Russia and take Moscow at once, and so he pushed on. One battle there was in which he conquered the Russians, but lost 30,000 men himself. A week later, the Grand Army, or what was left of it, reached Moscow. Food had run short, but now all hoped to get as much as they wanted. Napoleon expected that the Tsar would come to meet him and surrender himself and the keys of the capital. But what was his surprise when he reached the city to find the streets empty? There were no people, and worse still, there was no food. Indeed, the city was breaking into flames, for the Russians had preferred to burn their town rather than give it up to Napoleon. And now there was nothing to do but turn back and march across that dreary land through the terrible frost and snow west again. A Russian army blocked the way, and in another battle thousands more men were lost. There was nothing to eat but horse flesh, and the soldiers' clothes froze on them. Napoleon, in the gray overcoat which he always wore, was pale and haggard with anxiety. All the way the Russians attacked the outer parts of the army without giving battle. At the river Beresina, the bridge had been cut down, and the Russians were waiting at the other side. The French built a bridge and struggled across the icy water, but the Russians attacked them, and thousands were driven back into the river and drowned. Napoleon never showed any sign of weakness, but led the remnant of his army on, until at the town of Vilna he heard bad news, and at last left his army and pushed on as fast as he could to Paris. After this, the army fell into disorder, and only a few thousands of the half-million men whom Napoleon had led so proudly into Russia crossed the river Neman and left it again. At Paris, Napoleon said that things had gone well, 
but that the cold of the winter had caused losses in the army. But he could not deceive Europe. The Prussian people now rose and forced the government to declare war once more on Napoleon. Russia joined them, and then Austria. The armies against Napoleon were more dangerous than ever before, but he did not give up hope. He was still able to get together an enormous army, and he won one more victory at Dresden, but at the great Battle of the Nations at Leipzig, he was defeated and driven across the Rhine. Even now, the countries of Europe would have been glad to leave him France for himself, but he would not agree, and so the armies followed him into France. Even now, he won brilliant victories, but he could no longer keep his enemies divided and fight them one by one, as he had so often and so cleverly done before. His generals told him it was madness to resist, and at last the great emperor, who had defied Europe so long, had to confess that he was beaten. At first he offered to abdicate in favor of his son, but none would agree to this. He had to abdicate altogether. But even now the people of Europe hardly dared to suggest that he should become as other men. He was still to be called emperor, but he was to be kept quite safe on the little island of Elba, which was to be the only land left to him. There Napoleon went, and the brother of Louis the Sixteenth came to be the king of France and was called Louis the Eighteenth. A Congress of Representatives of the five great countries of Europe, Russia, Prussia, Austria, France, and Great Britain met at Vienna. There were many things to settle after the terrible confusion of the last 25 years, and the representatives soon began to quarrel. Meanwhile, Napoleon was lonely in Elba, alone with thoughts which drove him nearly mad. Of all he had lost and all he had nearly won, Marie-Louise had gone home to Austria and taken her baby with her. She had refused to follow her husband to the lonely island of Elba. Napoleon had joked as he looked down one day from the top of the highest hill in Elba, saying with a smile, It must be confessed that my island is very small. But at last he could bear it no longer. He made up his mind to have one last try for power. He had heard that the new king of France, Louis XVIII, was not a man whom the French would love or admire. He knew, too, that his own soldiers had loved him and remembered how the men of his imperial guard had wept when he bade them goodbye. He would go to France and try to win it back again. Soon news came to Vienna that Napoleon had landed in France and was marching to Paris, and that the French soldiers were trooping to his standard, and Louis XVIII had fled. The Congress broke up. Nothing could be done until he was conquered again. Wellington, who had driven the French right out of Spain in 1813, was the man to save Europe. For a hundred days, Napoleon ruled at Paris, getting together once more an enormous army, while Prussia and England and Austria and Russia did the same. But Napoleon was the quickest, and he made up his mind to attack the Prussians under their general, Blücher, in Belgium, then the English under Wellington, before the two armies could join together, and before the Russians and Austrians, who were marching across Europe, should come up to them. He attacked the Prussians at Ligny and defeated them. Blücher then drew his army back towards Wavre, but Napoleon thought he had gone to Namur. Napoleon sent some regiments toward Namur to prevent Blücher joining the English. He then turned to attack Wellington at a place called Quatre Bras, or the Four Roads. Wellington had already fought with one of Napoleon's officers, but neither side won, and now Wellington drew off towards Waterloo, a plain near Brussels. Here Napoleon followed and attacked, and on the 18th of June the Great Battle of Waterloo was fought. 
It was the first time that Napoleon and Wellington had met to fight each other. The English army was posted on a ridge of hills. On the road below, he left men to guard the farmhouse of La Haye Saint, and still further to the right, more men to guard the farm and castle at Hougoumont. The French were drawn up on a ridge at the other side of the valley. Both generals were sure of victory. At half-past eleven in the morning, the battle began. Napoleon's plan of battle was to stagger the enemy's front with artillery, and then, before they had recovered, to send in bodies of cavalry to break them up or ride them down. But he could hardly do this with the two farms in the way. The French, therefore, made many determined attacks on La Haye Saint and Hougoumont, but could not take them. It was a tremendous struggle and very equal, but at half-past four in the afternoon, Blücher, with his Prussians, tired after a long march but fresh enough to fight, came up and attacked the right of the French army. Soon after, Wellington cried, Up, guards, and at them! And the 1,500 English guards, whom he had kept in reserve till then, dashed on to the French ranks. The line broke, and the French turned and fled. Only the imperial guards stood close round the emperor. The British begged them to surrender, for they hated to cut down such brave men. The guard dies but does not surrender, was the answer. At last, Napoleon rode sadly from the field. He had lost everything. True, 25,000 English and Prussians lay dead on the field, and Wellington wept as the list was read to him. But it was the end of the great struggle, and Napoleon knew it. He tried to get away in a ship to America, but the shores of France were too closely watched. At last he gave himself up to the officers on the battleship the Bellerophon, which sailed to Plymouth. Meanwhile it had been decided that he should be sent to the island of St. Helena, halfway between the coasts of Africa and South America. There he would be safe. He lived there for six years, with sentinels posted round his house and an English officer visiting him every day to make sure that he was still there. English battleships lay at anchor round the island to make doubly sure. For the most part, he was calm and spent much of his time writing down his memoirs, the story of his life as it seemed to him. There is much that is true and much that is false in his story. Near him were always the portraits of Josephine, who died soon after Waterloo, and Marie-Louise and his son, the young Napoleon, who was never to be emperor after all. Napoleon was buried at St. Helena, but years afterward the French people, remembering his greatness, for he was, after all, one of the greatest men who had ever lived, had his body carried to Paris and buried there in a gorgeous tomb with a circle of great marble figures looking down on the spot where the body of the emperor lies. End of chapter 44